Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a new episode of Carried Interest, Building Wealth Through Knowledge and Network. This is episode 15. Yes, episode 15. We appreciate you listening. I'm back with my fantastic co-hosts, Nate and Jesse. We have an amazing guest, Dylan Kwasniewski of Six Summit Capital back. Ex-NASCAR driver, not a pro real estate developer. We go zero to 100, breaking down the Charlotte market and everything that he and his partners have been able to build. Please tune in, because a very humble guy with great head on his shoulders, discussing everything from the market to loss aversion, picking partners, and frankly, you know, building something out of nothing, no college background. Tune in, sit back, enjoy. All right, guys, we're joined today with an exciting guest, uh, Dylan Kwasniewski. Um, he's got a really interesting background and we're gonna dive deep into it. Uh, started out actually as a NASCAR driver, um, made his way into real estate, uh, started in brokerage uh, in the real estate industry, and then has now transferred to um, developer acquisition um, stance. So Dylan has uh, quite a few properties in his new group, Six Summit Under Management and we'll dive uh, deep into how he got to where he is and ask him some questions uh, along the way. So Zach, I'll hand it over to you. Hell yeah, man. And I will take that baton and throw it right over to Dylan. Obviously you've got a pretty incredible background, man. Like very unique, right? Not many people go from professional athlete, NASCAR at a young age and transition to real estate. So I'd obviously be intrigued as to like why real estate? How did you make the transition? Uh, you also brokered like over a hundred million dollars from 2018 uh, while you were, um, I guess, with your brokerage. Um, and then from there, it looks like you, you really parlayed with your partners of Six Summit Capital right now. You guys have something close to $65 million under management or JV. Uh, so I'm just curious about how you've transitioned from one thing to the other and some of the principles you've held throughout those starting from NASCAR over to where you are now. I mean, feel free to take it away. Yeah. Um, I think that's a good synopsis. I mean, a lot of, a lot of steps, um, in the process to where we're at now, but you know, in short was a race car driver from the time I was five years old, all the way up until I got into real estate, which was, I think when I was 21, if I'm not mistaken, um, you know, thought I was going to race cars for the rest of my life. I always kind of knew that that was my career path, but was always super fascinated with real estate, given my family's background. My dad was in the hotel business on the operations side, worked for Starwood Hotels and Starwood Capital Group and uh, ran the hard rock at the end of his life out in Vegas. So we kind of jumped around a lot and moved around to uh, a lot of different places across the United States. And I think that's really what started my love for the real estate business. So, you know, ran professionally from the time I was 15 to 21. Um, was at a point in my career where, you know, I, I, the, the sport was struggling a little bit. Sponsorship was harder to come by. Viewership was declining. I think it's back on the right track now. But at, at that point in time, I always had you know passion to try my hand at a different kind of business and felt like that was a good opportunity for me to do it. And man, I, I always thought I was going to keep the door open for racing and potentially go back and, and uh, you know dabble with that a little bit. But I did not think I was going to be so passionate and love real estate the way that I did. And I kind of just put my head down in a new industry and um, never really looked back. Um, and was fortunate to, to land with a good group of guys over at Colliers International in Charlotte and just a super entrepreneurial firm. Uh, really loved the partners over there. It was actually locally owned by five partners of the office, and we were almost a, a franchise, if you will, of Colliers uh, International with, you know, the global fag and, and uh, all the tools and, um, you know, bandwidth that we had at our disposal. So 
I think the the pivot from racing to uh, to brokerage was was smoother than I thought. I think just given in in racing, it's eat what you kill. I mean, you go out there on the racetrack and you perform well, and uh, it's ultimately just highs and lows, and that's definitely the same thing in brokerage and in real estate. So. Um, ended up cutting my teeth there for four years and just really loved it. Um, was fortunate enough to have some good success and always knew that the brokerage path was, was going to be the avenue that I got into the principal side on, on the development, um, and acquisition space. And, uh, back in June of last year, we, we decided to more formalize the group of six summit capital and it's myself and the five original partners of our colleagues office. And we just brought on another guy, JJ Sutherland, who's been running a family office in Atlanta and just a well-rounded team. It's been great so far and, you know, uh, super excited about what we got going on this year, what we got going on for the next five years and uh, hopefully for the rest of my career in the, in the real estate biz. Absolutely, man. And, and I actually checked out, obviously I checked out your team. You're, you're definitely the youngest guy, right? Uh, by, yeah. By far. And I actually have a lot of friends who are getting into real estate, have been in real estate through the brokerage side. So I'm very intrigued to pick your mind on, on the brokerage end. Uh, completely growing market, still just a budding market out in Charlotte. You became the VP of Colliers International with your with your really quick stint there in four years. So I'd love to hear what type of you know what was your strategy going in? What type of assets were you were you managing, selling, uh, and then how were you able to parlay that uh, to become the youngest, really the youngest principal at Six Summit now? Yeah, so. You know, titles in the brokerage industry, it sounds cool, but it's just a matter of, you know, production and where you're at in the firm and, and all that jazz. So I would not hold any weight in the actual title that I had there. But, um, you know, I think having the opportunity in the platform to have some success was was the biggest thing. Uh, you know, I always tell people that are getting into the brokerage side of things. The firms are great. Ultimately, you have to have the platform that um, you want to have to be successful and the tools and the resources across the United States or across the globe, if that's what you're doing. But I think uh, it really boils down to the people and the mentors that you have. And I was really fortunate to have good mentors and good partners. And uh, they are now my partners in a different venture with Six Summit. And I think that, you know, shows the value and the people that you surround yourself with. And I really um, give a lot of credit to those guys and just allowing me to, to figure out what I wanted to do in the brokerage industry. And you know, to answer your question on what I was doing, what I was focused on, I, I initially jumped into the business, was doing a little bit of tenor rep, uh, a little bit of leasing, but I really gravitated towards urban infill investment sales. And we just didn't have a capital markets platform within the Collier's office in Charlotte, per se. We did at, at Collier's across the United States and across the globe, but it was a little bit more street brokerish in Charlotte. And um, it really started by us trying to find a building that we wanted to buy. Uh, for the office. It was the five partners and they wanted to acquire a building and redevelop a, you know, industrial building in South End, which is one of the hottest neighborhoods in, in Charlotte and uh, convert that to a higher and better use and occupy space. So um, perfect opportunity for me to make a, a good sale with a credible buyer. And I think uh, after that, and well, to back up for a second, we ended up missing on an opportunity. And then I ended up getting a pocket listing on that, ended up selling that to a, a big developer in town. And that just kind of, you know, was the springboard on what I decided to focus on in the urban infill space. So um, cut my teeth doing that, just built good relationships with clients in town, out of town, and um, just really started to see my passion on the principal side and thinking of the mindset of a developer and, you know, taking that approach to, to the brokerage, um, brokerage world. And now we get to do it ourselves and be able to be in the seat and make those decisions. 
Dylan, I, I think your background and, and Zach did a great job of kind of touching on, you know, where, like where you've been and, and how you've kind of progressed for starters. I mean, what you've done at this age is, is super impressive. So, so kudos to you. One question that I have is just given that background that you do have, right. Being coming from racing, you did that for a large portion of your life and then transition into real estate. Was there anything that you learned as a driver that really has helped you excel in a completely different field that is real estate? Most definitely. I think, you know, maybe a, a larger overarching theme is just sports in general. I think sports in general just teaches you discipline and a competitive nature that I think never gets lost. Even if you translate into a business that's totally outside of, you know, your comfortable realm, but I think racing in particular, I mean, it's a lot of highs and lows, like I was saying before, a lot of intensity. And I think, you know, growing up being a race car driver, it kind of just allows you to slow things down when you're in more of a business mindset. So I was actually just talking to my sister's boyfriend about this when we were riding bicycles. We were out there cycling in the morning and uh, kind of clearing our head. And, you know, business is, is a competitive sport and it's just not as quick and not as um, extreme as maybe a, a sanctioned sporting event. But the reality is, if you're really trying to build a career, you know, it's a long marathon race and you've got small wins, you've got small losses, you've got big wins and you got big losses. So I think, you know, what I learned in the, in the motorsports industry and racing and sports in general, I translate into, you know, my real estate career and just taking the same mentality, training the same way that you would uh, for a sport and just kind of uh, really investing a lot of time, energy and effort into something that you love to do. And I'm fortunate that I do something that I absolutely love and um, my partners around me absolutely love it too. So I think, um, you know, people that grow up in sports can definitely translate that. And that's why you see, um, a lot of successful people that, that pivoted. So I, I want to dive deep into, uh, into the investing, just like for, for anyone listening out there, I want, I want to get an idea of, you know, with the partnerships that you've been able to cultivate over time, really your partners now at six summit, what investing principles have you learned and you guys implement when acquiring new really new developments. Um, also, if you could touch on urban infill, right? What the hell is that for people who don't know? What is urban yeah. infill? And how have you taken like the, what you've learned from the brokerage side into the acquisition side? Yeah, so urban infill, I think at a high level is any urban dense pocket of, you know, uh, a metropolitan area that you're filling with um, curated sites that ultimately add to the community and give back to the neighborhood and, and cultivate some sense of placemaking. So I think, you know, you can get down either, you know, retail, residential, creative office, um, or a mix of both mixed use product. And what we focus on is really in that adaptive reuse space. So taking a lot of 1960s industrial buildings that were in Charlotte at one point in time, you know, textile neighborhoods that were old mills and then converting those to a higher and better use. Um, I, I was on the office brokerage team technically, but, you know, urban infill is kind of a wide swath of product type and asset classes. So, you know, I think our investment theme and our principles is, you know, we go and acquire and redevelop things that we know and love well. We, we you know, could probably go take the easy route out and, and do just down the middle of the fairway office and industrial product and 
you know, don't get me wrong. We love to do that stuff. We absolutely chase value add office and value add industrial, but you know, we really like to do um, asset classes that we want to spend time with and that we're creating, you know, a sense of community around. So I think we've got seven partners, uh, three of which are managing the day to day and myself and then two other partners on the operational side of the business, but seven of us make up the investment committee. And as you mentioned before, I'm by far the youngest. My, you know, next partner in line's uh, mid 40s, and then our oldest partners are in their late 50s, creeping up on 60. So a lot of tenure in the industry. I lean on them a lot. I've been through multiple downturns, and I think you know we poke holes in models, and they nitpick the shit out of a lot of things. But uh, I think it just allows us to have a, a wide view on what we're acquiring and what we're developing. Um, so you got conservative mindsets, you got progressive mindsets, and hopefully with the partners that we've ultimately cultivated, we, we try to meet in the middle and then have good investing principles out of that. So we've been successful so far, you know, we're new in the actual, uh, six summit brand name or the incorporation of what six summit is, but the partnership's been around for a long time. We've been investing with each other for a while. Um, I've kind of came to the game a little bit later, but, uh, it's like, I've been with these guys for for 20 and 30 years. And hopefully that's, uh, you know, going to be a good groundwork and launchpad for us to continue to be successful. I have a feeling it will. And, uh, you know, you, you talk about redevelopment for, for anyone out there was wondering redevelopment requires a lot of construction and construction management, right? So, I mean, when you're taking a warehouse building and converting it into, let's say mixed use, for example, you might be dealing with variances from, from the town. You might be dealing with multiple contractors. How do you guys distribute responsibility throughout your team? How do you manage all those different, you know, facets from like raising equity to let's say acquiring a new property, raising or getting the debt together for that and managing the construction. Do mm. a few people handle each phase or uh, is it like one person will take down one entire project? And what have you found is the most difficult part of that process? Yeah, so we definitely have been coming up with a process um, and that's still a work in progress. I think, honestly, that's the biggest thing of, about successful people in general. I think if you've got good processes, if you've got good uh, ways of doing business and just um, organize and be effective, no matter what you're in, I think you're going to be successful. You can figure it, that out. And it definitely goes for for real estate development. I, I tell people that, you know, I think real estate development are just expert managers. Um, there's a lot of different facets of the transaction that you have to have your finger on and figuring out how to delegate responsibilities and then trust in the people that are doing those, those tasks at hand, I think will allow that firm or that team to be successful. And, you know, take this with a grain of salt. We're, we're again, have been around, the partnership has for a while, but Six Summit is in its infancy stage. So, um, when I said it's a work in progress, it definitely is. But I think what we figured out is there's three of us that really manage the day to day. And we've got a management co called Summit Capital Management. And then we have Six Summit Capital. Six Summit Capital is really the investment vehicle that votes and makes decision on behalf of our equity and external equity. And Summit Capital Management is the entity that's in place to uh, run everything from the development side of things, from the asset management side of things, from the accounting, tax reporting, uh, and the disposition side. So it's myself who's really on the front end in the acquisitions and capital raising efforts, um, you know, structuring the debt as well. Uh, anything to do with the front end vision of the acquisition at hand or the development opportunity that's ahead of us. 
And then JJ Sutherland, who's my partner that we just brought on from Atlanta, who's running a family office, is an absolute savant when it comes to um, underwriting, analyzing the actual deal, the back-end asset management piece of the business, anything to do with the finance side of things, he's just an absolute expert at and has had a lot of good experience doing that over the years previously to this uh, family office that he was running. He was at Trimont. Um, it was actually on the Lima Brothers account doing their real estate portfolio. So he was a great addition that was well needed. Um, we didn't necessarily have that within <clears throat> the uh, partnership of Six Summit. And then Teddy Chapman, who's my other partner, really runs anything to do with the operations and the legal side of things. So you know, I'll run front end uh, acquisition legal, but then when it gets to the point where we're structuring our operating agreements, subscription booklets, anything to do with the actual investors, he takes that over at a point in the process and then continues that forward. So us three kind of make up the decision-making side of the operational business. And then uh, the larger partnership of seven really votes on major decisions and uh, how we are just most effective in our investment strategy. Mm -hmm. Got it. Very interesting. So, you know, you, you, you talked about eat what you kill, right? Especially in a, in NASCAR. So, right. Let, let's say you wake up, right. The, the average day of, uh, of Dylan, for example, you wake up and you're obviously looking for new acquisitions, you know, new acquisitions for, for your company. What is the process that you take specifically, um, when going out and finding, you know, new development opportunities, redevelopment opportunities. And then when you find something, the process for presenting it, you know, to your partners and, coming to a conclusion as to whether it's the right one to take down. I, I kind of want to get a better idea, especially in the commercial space. You know, I'm in the residential space. So in the commercial mm -hmm. space, like how are you sourcing product, right? I'm sure it's a lot like through your broker relationships. Um, what are you going out to do daily to, uh, to eat what you kill? Yeah, so I think first and foremost, we all came from a deal-making background um, and specifically the ones that are, come from a sports background. <clears throat> we also have an interesting dynamic with the partners because we've got an ex-secret service agent. We've got an ex-army officer. Uh, we've got a, a, another one that was in uh, the actual military background. Um, so it's just an eclectic group of people that are all hungry and figuring out the opportunity. So that kind of came naturally. But as I mentioned, bringing on JJ was a, a big addition because we needed the finance expertise and figuring out how we just poke holes in the financial underwriting of that. Um, so from uh, you know, eat what you kill mentality and sourcing, we're, we've been fortunate to build good relationships within the brokerage space. And um, people know us as brokers first and foremost. And now we've started Six Summit Capital. And I think, you know, brokers understand that they got to find opportunities. They want to do deals with people that they enjoy doing deals with. And they ultimately want to make a transaction happen. So I think from our standpoint, if we get a deal under contract, if we source something, if we're going to say we're, if we say we're going to do something, we absolutely have to act on that. And we do not want to be known as folks that ultimately waste time or, you know, get deals under contract and drop them for some reason or another. Um, so I think people understand that. People understand if there's going to be a six element opportunity and they take it to us, hopefully we're going to, we're going to execute that and handle the transaction the most effective way possible. And from the sourcing side of things, you know, those relationships are great, but then I think never losing that brokerage mindset and deal-making mindset. I think brokers are super hungry. Um, it's a fully commission-based job and you can sit there and hang out on the couch or play Xbox. And sometimes you need to do that, 
Um, but the reality is there's always an opportunity and there's somebody else that's looking for that opportunity. So if you continue to have that eat what you kill mentality and translate that into the actual principal side, hopefully that's a, you know, a, a good groundwork for us to continue to find deals and continue to leverage our good relationships within that space. So on the brokerage end, when you were, I mean, really hustling like a hundred percent commission, right? Like what, what in your experience was the number one deal killers, right? And the number one thing that actually, you know, actually made deals, right? Cause we're talking about large industrial office, commercial buildings. Like there's a lot of sometimes ego, sometimes uh, obviously money involved, but like what killed deals? What, what were you able to do to put deals together on the sales side? Yeah. So I, I'm sure you guys have heard this, but I think time kills all deals. Um, you know, that's definitely true in, in the space, whether it's a brokerage deal or whether you're acquiring or developing an asset, it's just people get fatigued, you know, and, and there's quick opportunities and you have to strike when the iron's hot and specifically in a market like Charlotte or Austin or Raleigh or Phoenix, anything that's just super hot. I mean, you, if you find an opportunity, you have to figure out a way to make it happen if it's something that you really want to pursue. So I think time is the biggest thing. And then just figuring out what's important to the deal. I think some people have this mentality that they're just going to negotiate everything for the sake of making themselves look better. <clears throat> and I think it's not really for the sake of the client or for the sake of themselves. Maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe it's just you know wanting to negotiate. I don't know. But I think I definitely had that in my career where I just felt like I needed to get this one term you know, across the finish line. Um, for the sake of doing it. But when you take a step back and say, okay, well, if I'm negotiating X, but my end goal is this, you know, what's, what's the true value in trying right. to hammer this down somebody's throat. Right. So I think just really realizing what's, what's important and, and doing that as effectively as possible, because if you drag things out, it's just going to kill it at the end of the day. That, that's so important um, for a lot of reasons. I, I work with a lot of sometimes new investors who are so fixated on, I want, I want to buy and hold, right? For example, just on the small scale, I want to buy and hold property that cash flows me this yearly, right? And they come across a great opportunity in a super hot market and they pass it up because, you know, they didn't want to do it as a flip. They didn't want to sell the property. And let's say somebody like you, or maybe Nate or Jesse, let's say your goal is a thousand units, right? You get fixated on one term that stops you from actually acquiring the next, let's say a hundred. Right. The yeah. grand scheme, it's just, well, why even do that in the first place? Unless it actually affects like the bottom line of that deal. So I think a lot of times people get fixated. I do it myself on a specific deal, working out a specific way for a specific reason. And don't take a step back to say like, you know, this is just bricks at the end of the day, right? It's bricks and we want to better communities, better our lives economically. There's a bigger picture on a lot of these yeah. deals. So it's hard to get people to realize that on both sides of the table when you're on the sales side. And then when you're on the acquisition side, I'm sure it's a whole different psychological game for yourself. Totally is. I think, uh, you know, you guys have all heard the term analysis by process and I'm guilty of it sometimes in, in this new space because, you know, the brokerage mindset, <clears throat> you're just doing whatever you can to make a deal happen. And, uh, you know, it, I was never of the mindset that I was trying to cram a deal down anybody's throat for the sake of just getting a transaction or a fee out of it. You know, if I was going to do a deal, it was for the sake of believing in the deal. It was something that I, if I was representing a client that was buying something, it was something that I actually believed in. And if I was in their shoes, I would do that. Um, and then you get into the actual 
uh, seat of making the decision yourself and you find 50 different reasons, you know, why not to do the deal. And sometimes us collectively, we've got to take a step back and say, guys, you know, we can change this model a thousand times and we can find something that maybe we don't necessarily feel comfortable with, but there's a reason why we're sitting in this place. There's a reason why this deal is attractive in the first place. You know, let's peel back some of the layers and then get down to the grass roots of why this deal uh, was attractive to us. And if it makes sense, let's figure out a way to make that happen. So um, I think there's a good balance. You definitely have to underwrite the shit out of things and make sure that it uh, passed the sniff test and stress test that you allocate for the actual deal. But sometimes you have to just go and look at the asset, look at the neighborhood and go with your gut feeling. And, um, you know, maybe it doesn't pay off, but you hope that you know, for the most part, it does pay off. Can you walk us through your first deal with Six Summit um, once you got into the, the principal seat and tell us a little bit about how that first one went and some lessons you learned from it? Yeah, so the first deal under the actual Six Summit umbrella was uh, a super small uh, historic building that was about 6,000 feet. It was right over the Belmont neighborhood of Charlotte, which is really about half a mile outside of the center city of Uptown. And historically, it was a pretty rough neighborhood. Um, it's sandwiched in between a pretty hot pocket, two hot pockets of Noda, uh, which is a, a kind of a progressive arts district, and then Plaza Midwood, which is an artsy district as well, but a little bit more commercialized than Noda. And Belmont, just for some reason or another, just never had the attention. And it's a small commercial pocket, but uh, there's a lot going on over there. Good retailers, a lot of residential units coming up. So 1125 Belmont was a 6,000 square foot dilapidated historical building between two floors. And it's a landmark. It's not only a historic landmark, but it's a landmark in the community and the neighborhood. Uh, it's a very recognizable building. It's called the Red Front Department Store. And um, it's just kind of had, you know, more local investors that haven't necessarily given it the love that it needs. And folks that have just bought it, sat on it, you know, the guy that we bought it from, um, super nice guy, but the reality was he just didn't know what he was getting himself into. He, he bought the building and thought it was a, uh, you know, an attractive asset, but it's a lot of work. And I had clients before when I was doing deals say that the small deals take as much, if not more time than the big deals. And it is so true um, because this has a historic tax credit component. It's got a, the landmark designation. It's in a neighborhood that um, is hypersensitive on what kind of use and what kind of development goes over there. And, uh, you know, had some structural issues that we were afraid of, it had some asbestos, like paint, you know, potential environmental contamination. So, you know, anything that you can think of, throw it at it. And we were, we were pretty nervous going into it, just seeing what we were going to open up. And the reality was it was actually in really good shape for the age of the building. It was built in 1902. Um, it had some settling in the back to where, you know, a, a portion of the facade was falling over, but the repairs that were done were great. And uh, it checked all the boxes from a structural view. Uh, we did a phase one environmental test and uh, it was clean, but there was a dry cleaners next door, which is typically a red flag. And when we did our phase two, didn't have any kind of pops on the contamination. So, you know, what we thought was going to be a really heavy lift ended up being a pretty clean building for what it is. And, uh, you know, ended up closing off market. Um, got a lot of good press and now the neighborhood is super excited to see something happen over there. And, you know, it's a really small deal. It's about, you know, $2 million total project capitalization. And from us, it's just, you know, that's a, that's a small deal for us to 
spend a lot of time, energy, and effort on. But it's something from our perspective that we're really passionate about. It's a great recognizable building for us to kind of have under the, the Six Summit brand for the first deal. And it's something that everybody's excited about. So I think we were all kind of thinking, man, this is a time suck, man. This could have a lot of skeletons in the closet, but uh, didn't have much skeletons and it still is a time suck, but I think it's well worth it just given uh, what we're able to do with that building and bringing it back to its historical nature and having the community and neighborhood really excited about it. Dylan, what is, what is the, um, the, the closing process right, or the pre-closing process for larger commercial buildings, right? You talked about phase one, environmentals. I mean, it's, it's different than a single family. So it, I just want to get our listeners familiar with what that process is uh, once you've made your decision on going to you know, buy a piece of property from you know, raising the equity. Do you go out and raise the equity for each deal? Is equity raised for a fund in general so you can just go and acquire it? At what point do you get, do you make sure your debt is in line? Like just the order of operations so people can understand. Yeah, so it's all deal specific. On on that one, um, you know, we syndicate, well, first of all, we syndicate per deal. Uh, I think we're thinking about going towards a fund model at some point in time, but right now we want to block and tackle and ultimately build a, you know, a good portfolio and investment tracker, track record. We already have a good track record just with our audience, but I think we ultimately want to have some successful assets and realize those assets. I mean, you know, there's guys in the market that can buy 15 deals and they may seem like they're on top of the world, but you have to sell it at the end of the day if that's your strategy or it's a long-term hold and you're cash flowing it. But, you know, if your fiduciary duty is to the investors and you have a, you know, four to six year time horizon, you have to sell that at a good multiple in IRR in order for, for it to be a success. So I think process wise on that particular deal, we raised friends and family. It was uh, we ended up getting like 50% leverage up front, but then we have what's called a good news provision, meaning once we actually had a, a lease in hand that we can leverage all the way up to 70%. Hmm. So it was like a built-in refi almost that yeah. we negotiated up front, but that means we had to raise more equity up front and then we can ultimately distribute back to investors later on. We do uh, elect to go through that good news provision. So yeah, I think there's two sides. There's the deal side, which you have a whole due diligence checklist and the process on that. <clears throat> and then, you know, your capital market side, the deal side, you know, you've got everything from phase one, phase two, structural assessment, um, asbestos report, I have to do a survey, a topo study, topo as in topography, uh, site plan. Uh, in this case, we had to actually get you know, kind of preliminary approval from the Landmarks Commission to see if our our investment strategy and design um, approach was going to be acceptable to the commission. So that had a couple extra layers on it that maybe, you know, a, a value at office building maybe wouldn't have. Um, and on that, you know, we went to relationship lenders, just local banks that would lend on a product type like this. And we ultimately went to, I think, five different banks, <clears throat> got a handful of term sheets, negotiated on those term sheets to get to something that we felt comfortable with and then selected the, the kind of relationship bank that we felt was going to be a good partner on this deal and then deals going forward. You know, we're closing on another deal, um, I think in a week and a half, pretty, actually, I think it's next Friday. And that's a larger deal. That's about $10 million total project app, uh, adaptive reuse deal. In that, we actually engaged um, JLL's capital markets team and a good buddy of mine who's over there was our broker. And they ultimately put together a whole offering memorandum on the deal 
packaged that up um, in an OM, took it out to the masses. And I think we ended up getting seven different term sheets. We had 15 different lenders look at it, anywhere from local lenders to debt funds to uh, national banks, regional banks. So that was more of a competitive process. And that was in South End. And as I mentioned before, South End's really kind of the, the hub in Charlotte. So uh, a lot of interest from that perspective and uh, more of a process in general on that, but we didn't have the historical component. We did have some environmental contamination that we had to figure out, which we ended up doing, but man, it's a mixed bag. It just depends on the deal itself. And sometimes it's super clean and sometimes it's, you know, you wish you never started in the first place. Another feeling. <laughs> yeah. One one thing I was thinking about and just hearing all the, the stuff you're working on, Dylan, is, I mean, you talked about it a little with, with respect to urban infill, but there's, there's so many different asset classes out there that you could focus on and target. Why, why go the, the route you did over, say, something more habitational or hospitality? What kind of got you into this, right? Like, you know, mm-hmm. given, given you have a family background in the hospitality space, like you mentioned, you know, that, mm-hmm. that could be a natural draw. What, what kind of got you down this path? Yeah, so I think um, one is just a passion. I think it depends on the market, right? Like in Vegas, where I grew up, the buildings aren't old enough to really start seeing a new life. You know, the life cycle of real estate is pretty interesting because <clears throat> you've got brand new buildings, class A buildings that are trophy assets, and uh, that goes through a life cycle, right? Like over the years, if you don't take care of it, it starts to get a little bit degraded and then maybe it gets to a distress opportunity or a value add opportunity. And then at some point over the life cycle, you know, if it's value add, maybe you, you put some dollars into there and then you kind of keep it within that space. But maybe it just gets so rough that it sits dormant for 25 years and then maybe 30 years, 40 years, 100 years. And then it becomes more of an adaptive reuse play at some point in time. So the life cycle is interesting in general on real estate assets. And I think it's market specific on, you know, whether or not you've got buildings old enough to really add character, bring new life back into it. And Vegas was not in that category, but Charlotte definitely is within these industrial buildings. And I think you're seeing a trend in general of folks wanting more creative spaces. You know, you can build new buildings all day long and I'm all for well-designed new buildings. You know, I'm all for, you know, high density uses and in, in the city that we're in in Charlotte, but thoughtful design is, I think, um, the key. You can't just throw buildings up for the sake of throwing buildings up. But the adaptive reuse space is, is it's creative. It's just trying to figure out how to best position the asset for the neighborhood that you're in or the, you know, the target tenant, the demographic, whatever it may be. It's kind of a blank canvas. And it's, it's development, but you're utilizing some aspects of the existing infrastructure. So one, it's just fun. Two, it's places that I want to go spend time at. I think, you know, when I go around to like a Pond City Market in Atlanta or a Chelsea Market, um, you know, both of those were actual Jamestown deals, big institutional investor, and they've, they've done large scale adaptive reuse extremely well. And those are really recognizable places. It's just something that's very unique. And you just feel a, a certain feeling when you go and step foot in one of those buildings. So I think there's a true passion in that with me and my, the rest of my partners. Those are just, you know, 
placemaking opportunities and really cultivating a sense of community around it. So I gravitated towards that. Love it. You know, I've always loved the idea of getting into the hotel space, but hotels are just a totally different ball game. It's very operational intensive. You have to be an expert within that space in order to, to really hit it out of the park. But, you know, with our urban info projects, we've maybe have some ancillary land that we can bring in a, an expert in the hotel space and participate in the upside JV with those guys, but they're the experts in the space. And, you know, when you add a hotel layer to adaptive reuse, whether it's creative office, retail or both, and then maybe bringing in some boutique curated residential product too with another partner that's an expert in that. You know, we don't do multi, we don't do hotels. Um, maybe at some point in time, if we actually grow kind of our, our reach, but you know, there's experts that do that and good partners and we'll most certainly bring those, them in if it's a project that makes sense to do so. No, I, I love how you said you guys are closing on a new deal like next week, because I, I one of the one of the biggest questions I wanted to ask was, you know, I talked to a lot of investors who at, at different levels, whether it's commercial or residential, um, some are active, some are not, are a bit at times hesitant in a hot market, right? Cap rates are compressing, right? So your valuations are higher, there's inflation, construction costs. Have you mm -hmm. found that, you know, in that, in this Charlotte market that's growing so rapidly, you guys going after redevelopment plays like allows you to be, I would say, more shielded from cap rates compressing because you're going in and creating an insane amount of value versus just like a multifamily syndicator buying a property and steadily raising rents. Have you guys found like that's a lot more beneficial for your strategy or are you seeing even in the industrial space, we are converting these over to mixed use or multifamily, our cap rates really tightening up or construction costs kind of making you guys push away from certain deals? I think some, um, it's definitely frothy in aspects. And I was a naysayer maybe like two years ago, you know, I, I haven't been in the real estate business that long. So whoever's listening to this podcast, just let it be known. I'm a 26 year old that's been in the business for uh, coming up on five years now. Um, and I like to think I know what I'm talking about sometimes, but, uh, I surround myself with people who are much smarter than me. So, you know, two years ago, I thought like writings on the wall, you know, it just seems too frothy as a lot of people thought. And then, man, it, something just clicked specifically in Charlotte where I realized, I think we've got 10, 15 years, you know, left in the tank, if not 20, it's such a dynamic city. There's so much attention, so much corporate expansion coming here. Um, the number always fluctuates, but we've got something like 50 to 70 people net positive coming into the city every day. Um, some of those people are working remote. Some people are coming for jobs. My sister and her boyfriend just removed from New York City and they're 100% remote, but you know, it's adding to the residential stock here. And uh, maybe at some point they're gonna, they're gonna take an office or their company expands here and takes an office. So um, to answer your question in a long-winded way, I think, yeah, we wanna poke holes in things and there's definitely deals that just don't make sense. And uh, you know, folks just throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. But uh, we like to be, you know, kind of down to our roots and make sure we're making good investment decisions. And the reality is, yeah, it may seem high, but tell you what, the theme in the office is, man, we should have bought that deal. And there's oh. deals that we definitely shouldn't have bought. Um, I'm sure there's a saying, maybe Warren Buffett says, says it, but, you know, the best investments are the ones that's, that you didn't buy. Um, and uh you know, there's missed opportunities and you can think back to what I could have done to get those. But the reality is there's always new deals. You can push forward, find good opportunities. And 
I think we've got a lot of runway in Charlotte and sure there's, there's definitely some frothiness, but I just don't see the city going anywhere for the next 10, 15 years, like I said. So with that said, um, what are some of your goals as a growing company uh, to expand as a company, but also to expand your presence in Charlotte? Yeah. So definitely want to expand the presence in Charlotte. I think pivoting from, everybody knowing us as brokers first to now everybody knowing us as six summit capital. And I think, you know, we were talking about our first initial deal and why we did it, you know, again, it was a recognizable building. And I think for the sake of just getting our name out there in a different light, that was very important to us. And same with this new deal in South End that we're buying. So I think one, um, you know, just having a well-respected track record, um, you can have certain investment hurdles that you want to hit and uh, goals that you want to reach. But I think first and foremost, we operate with high integrity and we want to translate that integrity that we've built in the brokerage industry to the principal side. So I think that's priority number one. Um, priority number two, three, four, five, whatever it may be, uh, is building outside of Charlotte and taking, you know, hopefully a successful track record here and then expanding that across the Southeast. Leveraging our relationships that we built with the Collier's offices in those offices or markets, um, and then hopefully creating new ones as well. So, you know, I want folks to know us as guys that do deals. And when we're say we're going to do something, where are you going to do it? And uh, I think if you build that kind of reputation, then you'll find more opportunities and it'll continue to sell off from there. So, yeah, we've got certain um, goals from an investment side of things that we'd like to hit, but I think, you know, we're looking at it as, you know, three-year tranches, and then maybe we'll have a larger time horizon after that. Um, some of the guys are still active in brokerage and transitioning more into the principal side. So I'm excited to see how everybody's going to grow as a partnership and then as a firm, and then, you know, expand our reach into different markets and hopefully replicate what we're able to do in Charlotte. Dylan, to, uh, to wrap up, man, I mean, in the 50 minutes that I've got to speak to you here, you know, you, you're very down to earth. And for an ex NASCAR driver, you seem extremely patient, which is something that I deal with in, in my real estate endeavors all the time is impatience, you know, got to go bigger, faster, sooner. Uh, but you seem to have this kind of even keel approach with the partners that you have of understanding it's a day by day task. So uh, I'm curious, man, what what drives you? Right? What has been driving you kind of like your I guess your whole life, like not many people go from obviously going pro in, in a certain field to now pro in another field so rapidly. Another question I have for you is that's a badass poster in the back you have there. Is that, <laughs> is, is that the Beatles? Who is that? Yeah, it is the Beatles, it, right? It is the Beatles. Yeah. Uh, so, I was curious this entire time, man. Yeah. So these are, my dad passed when I was 15, but these are, I've actually got his records all around. So he was a big music buff. So I've got the Beatles, yeah. Jay Hendrix, um, Rolling Stones. There's that's a bunch so of cool. albums that are up on the, on the walls. Um, but man, I think what drives me, it's, uh, it's a question you ask yourself every day. And I think, you know, you just want to look back in life and say, I, I maximize my opportunities and really did something to cultivate relationships, create something, be proud about the things that you created. You know, I think if people get clouded by dollar figures and money signs and don't get me wrong, like money is definitely an aspect of that, but I think money awards you opportunities to just pave your own path and not care who has anything to say about it. 
So from my perspective, and I think my partner's perspective, which is why we go and do adaptive reuse deals is just creating something that's cool and that we're proud about. Um, and I think, you know, building a business and building real estate assets, you know, specifically a tangible real estate asset that you can touch and feel that's, that's, that's definitely a big component of it. And then the business side, you know, having that good track record and um, creating something new and trying something that we never did before. So you know, that's kind of what drives me. Um, I try not to get clouded by the material things in life and just, you know, really build a good reputation and build good relationships and do it to people that you enjoy doing it with, whether that's your partners, your friends, your family, your girlfriend, wife, um, you know, it's lonely at the top. You want to bring everybody with you. So mm-hmm. hopefully people can create those things at the same time. Man, you're, you're clearly doing it. It goes, I guess, without saying, like, again, just this 15 minutes alone. Uh, we appreciate you coming on, just shedding light on what you do, how you've done it, the partners that you've chosen, um, even talking a little bit about loss aversion. I mean, very interesting background to what you've done now. Where can people learn more about you, uh, more about the company? Yeah, so uh, sixsummit.com is our website. It's the number six and then summit.com. You know, we, we're trying to keep up to date with that. Um, you know, we'd like to say that we're too focused on buying deals to update our <laughs> website, but I think that's a big important aspect of that. Um, you know, on LinkedIn as well, you can just look up my name, Dylan Kwasniewski. Um, that's really about the only social media platform I stay up to date on. I had to do so much social media and racing that I'm just kind of over it. Um, and I know some folks build, you know, great businesses off of social media and uh, they do a phenomenal job with that. And like what you guys are doing with the podcast, it's, it's great to actually get the word out there and just have, you know, open and holistic conversations about what people are passionate about. So kudos to you guys for actually taking the initiative to do that and appreciate you guys having me on here. Um, from my perspective, I try to stick to my guns and uh, do the things that I enjoy doing and I'm, I'm kind of gassed out on social media. So um, <laughs> website will definitely stay up to date. Just give um, us your cell number, man. We'll blast it out. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, 1-800-don't-call-me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, and feel free to reach out to me on, on those platforms. Happy to, uh, you know, talk whenever I can. And uh, I really enjoyed talking to you guys and appreciate you guys having me on the podcast. Absolutely, man. Until next time. Thank you. And that is today's episode. If any of you current and future investors want us to talk about any specific real estate topics you're interested in, or to ask us questions like, Jesse, how do you get your hair to stay so perfect? Nate, what's your favorite shaving cream? Feel free to email us directly at carriedinterestpodcasts at gmail.com. Yes, that's carriedinterestpodcasts at gmail.com. I'm telling you, the Google sponsorship is well on its way. Please tune in next time for more real estate knowledge Thanks for listening to Carried Interest. Peace out and go build some equity.